To Paul's letter in our Bibles known as 2 Corinthians, we turn this morning to chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians, which is at page 969 in your few Bibles. We're in the last section of this letter, what is sometimes called the boastful section from Paul to the church that he had planted earlier in Corinth over the almost two years that he had spent there. A church that has had its struggles by the time he writes to them, as we know from these many months that we've spent in these two letters, from Paul to his beloved spiritual children in that cosmopolitan city, that crossroads of the culture in its heyday. The church in Corinth has been called the most dysfunctional church in the Bible. It was due, no doubt, to many factors, but uh, whether the successfulness of the false teacher's infiltration of the congregation in Paul's wake was a cause or an effect of their dysfunction, we may never know. Probably a little bit of both. Those false teachers made many boasts in the course of seeking to undermine, and indeed in the hearts of many, uh, undermining Paul's ministry and indeed the gospel that he had preached to them. It was their boasting accompanied by their uh, disparagement of Paul's ministry that Paul had in mind when he concluded our passage last week with these words. It is not the one who commends himself who is approved but the one whom the Lord commends. But sometimes, sometimes you have to fight fire with fire. Sometimes, given the choice presented us in the book of Proverbs between not answering a fool according to his folly and answering a fool according to his folly, Wisdom dictates the latter. And that's what Paul's going to do now. And that is why he starts our passage today pleading for the forbearance of the faithful who are hearing this letter, the faithful who remain in Corinth, while he engages in a little foolishness of his own, skillfully and devastatingly applied by the power of the Holy Spirit, let's pray for that same Holy Spirit, our Father, for his mighty work in our hearts, who inspired Paul to write a little bit of foolishness here. We humbly ask that we may receive the foolishness of preaching as what it is, the very voice of God. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the first 15 verses. I wish you would bear with me on a little foolishness. Do bear with me. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit 
from the one you received. Or, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Now here comes a little foolishness Paul referred to. Verse 5, indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone. For the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need. Now you, you remember from, from several weeks back that the impact... The reality behind what he's just said, the, the Macedonians were poor, poor Christians, and they gave out of their poverty to support Paul. Paul's using a little hyperbole and saying, I robbed the churches to, to give you ministry free of charge, but it too is meant to have its effect. I'm not like these super apostles come with a bill in my hand to charge you for my message. And he wants those false teachers to hear it and to feel the sting of the backhand he's just served them. So I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. Verse 10, as the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you? God knows I do. And what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, their end will correspond to their deeds. You know you're in trouble when you have descended to asking advice from someone named Dr. Nerd Love. But then the advice column entitled Ask Dr. Nerd Love styles itself as the only advice column that represents the last best hope for peace in our galaxy. So here's the dilemma for Dr. Nerd Love. Dear Dr. Nerd Love, I'm engaged to a man who I love, but I'm in love with my best friend. The devil is in the details, though, so I guess I should explain. Let's start with my fiancé, H. He is a great guy. We have a healthy relationship. We rarely fight, and we support each other as best as we can. He came into my life when I needed someone the most, and he's been there for me ever since. I love H. Now, for my best friend, K., 
We've known each other since we were 11 years old, and there's always been some romantic tension between us. I thought it was just on my end. He thought it was just on his. But we never acted on it. Almost two decades of friendship and being in love with each other, and neither one of us ever did anything about it. The timing was always off. Either I was dating someone else or he was, but we've always kept in touch. We've always been close. Unfortunately, Kay waited until I was engaged to finally admit his feelings for me. And I wasn't about to lie to him about my feelings, so we both came clean about six months ago. Since then, it's put a strain on my relationships with both men. Should I break off my engagement with H and let K sweep me off my feet? Oh, Dr. Nerdlove, now there's a dilemma. <laughs> to paraphrase the 1970s songwriter, it's sad to be engaged to someone else when, though, you know the rest, right? The right one comes along. But here's the question. Why did Kay wait until the girl was engaged? Finally to admit his feelings for her. You know why, don't you? Because nothing makes a girl more attractive than someone else's ring on her finger. Dear church, you have a ring. On your finger, you are engaged. You're engaged to see, to Christ. And the ring that you wear is your baptism. And it all makes you very, very attractive to another who would, if he could, sweep you off your feet and steal you away from your bridegroom. But before we get to all that, may I explain that your engagement to be Christ is more than you might think because of our cultural understanding of engagement versus the practice in biblical times. The word Paul uses in verse 2 is betrothed. A betrothal in the Bible is not a marriage, but neither is it the mere uh, engagement as is the custom of our time with which we're familiar. Remember, how it was with marriage between the Jews and Paul's day. You remember, of course, uh, the whole struggle with the, with Mary, right? And Joseph betrothed to him. Uh, they were betrothed, but they had no physical union. We're told that Jewish marriage involved two separate ceremonies, the betrothal and the nuptial ceremony, which, which consummated the marriage. Usually, a year elapsed between that, those two, but during that period, the girl was re regarded legally as the man's wife, while socially she remained a virgin. The betrothal contract was a binding one and could only be broken by death or by a formal written divorce. Unfaithfulness or violation of a betrothed girl was regarded as adultery, and it was punishable as such. 
So when I say to you, dear flock, that you are engaged, what I mean to say is you are betrothed. You're betrothed. You're betrothed to Christ. You're engaged to be his. Paul says to the Corinthians in Corinth that he had played the matchmaker. Verse 2, for I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Paul had, of course, first introduced her, first introduced the church in Corinth to her husband. I have a husband for you, suitable for you, he's, he told them. Uh, they didn't know him, the, the husband, the bridegroom, before Paul arrived to tell them of the one who came to earth to become her husband, to love her to the point of dying for her, to make them his own. He told them how this had been the plan all along, even from before the world was made or anything that is in it, how the Father intended eternally for the Son not to be alone, but that there should be found one suitable for him, one with whom he could join himself in holy matrimony. It was Paul who brought these two together. And it was Paul who told them that this betrothal would then roll into a glorious marriage, a consummation on the great day of the coming of the bridegroom, even Jesus, the wedding supper of the Lamb. This is why they were to celebrate the supper, by the way, the Lord's Supper, when they came together as the foretaste among everything else that the supper is, of the grand banquet that beggars even the sanctified imagination. And now when that bride is threatened, and the union under fire, it's this same Paul who will not stand idly by while others work to put asunder what God has joined together. He is jealous for her. He's jealous for her with the very jealousy of God, with divine jealousy, he calls it. The jealousy he shares in common with God the Father, that the bride should be delivered safely to her husband's arms in purity, in virginity, unsullied, unspoiled, unstained. I said matchmaker a minute ago, but of course what I mean to say is that Paul was their father. He was their spiritual, he calls himself that a number of times. He's the father of the bride. And like any faithful father, his daughter's virginity, her purity, her protection, her care, her welfare, her safety, her safe arrival at the nuptials, unharmed, unviolated by anyone, is his business. You fathers of daughters, you know exactly of what I speak, don't you? Or certainly you should. Blessed is the daughter whose father loves her this much to be her protector, her defender, the one who stands and fights against anyone and everyone who would violate or harm my daughter. May I be make bold right now, dear church, and say that this is the way I feel about you. Here is the faithful pastor's job. He is to lead, to prepare the bride, to protect the bride from all who would seduce her, to drive away from her and loving uh, all of them who would assault and lovingly deliver her as a pure virgin to her rightful groom. That's a pastor's job. And toward that end, I have some very great duties to fulfill towards you and specifically this morning to to warn you that there are those who would seduce you, one in particular, and break your betrothal, 
sweep you away from your engagement with Christ and then to set the groom before you in such a way that, that he will completely captivate your heart and hold its affections until your wedding day. God helping me, I intend to do both of those right now. First, dear church, know this. You have an enemy who seeks to undo your engagement and who lies in wait to take and violate you and ravish and spoil and devour you. Know that. He wasn't very interested in you before. This is before you were engaged. But like Mr. K in the advice column, now that you're engaged to someone else, now that you are wearing his watery ring, he finds you irresistible. I'm not much into scary movies most of the time, but from the very first day I saw the trailer for John Krasinski's film, A Quiet Place, I was intrigued. He did not disappoint. As a matter of fact, I can tell you that there are some truly redemptive and beautiful qualities of the film, uh, touching such things as, as family and commitment and love and sacrifice and, and even Christ-like love. And Krasinski also delivered real terror. I'm pretty sure that by uh, the first half hour of the movie, uh, Rebecca and Debbie and I were all sharing a single seat in the uh, theater. Uh, I only hope that the, the bruises aren't permanent where I grabbed Debbie's leg uh, to comfort her. <laughs> now, you, you more cerebral types would find the whole thing quite banal, I'm sure, because you are in a league far above mine. And I can assure you that it is not a movie for small children. Most of the time in the film, the, the horrible creature may, remains hidden, unseen, silent. That's actually part of the terror. But when the monster is revealed, it is a as hideous a thing as modern computer graphics could possibly produce by way of tooth and claw. You have an enemy too, dear Christians, dear church, my brothers and sisters. He's a creature, no doubt, of great horror, more than any computer could ever generate on a screen of any size, though that must remain conjecture on my part, since the Bible doesn't give us a physical description of the evil one. But what we do know about the devil from the Bible is that he disguises himself. He disguises himself as an angel of light. When Satan is at work on the bride of Christ, you see, he doesn't burst into the scene and all his fanged hideousness. No, he disguises himself. He shrouds himself as an angel of light. He will not likely as likely jar you from Christ as he will steer and seduce you. C.S. Lewis captures his M.O. in Screwtape's diabolical counsel to his junior nephew, Demon Wormwood. Indeed, the safest road to hell is a gradual one. The gradual, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So what is that gentle slope, that seduction by which he leads the bride adulterously astray? 
Well, it's false teaching. It's false teaching from false teachers. Satan works through his servants who also disguise themselves, by the way, he says, often in investments, in viper's vestments. Verse 13, for such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. This is one of Paul's harshest passages next to that one that one of you was reminding me of just last week after worship in Galatians. R.C. Sproul grew up the late R.C., in a Presbyterian church. But it was not until he went off to college, let this sink in, grew up in a Presbyterian church, but it was not until he went to college that he first heard the gospel. As a child, he attended the catechism classes that his pastor taught, but his pastor had changed the questions from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and he added a few. This was one that he added. Who is the greatest living Christian is the question, and the answer, Albert Schweitzer. The Nobel Prize winning Albert Schweitzer was the son and grandson of ministers, said that the expression reverence for life was the key to Albert Schweitzer's personal philosophy. No person should ever harm or destroy life unless Absolutely necessary. Maury Vernig introduced me to Albert Schweitzer, or at least reintroduced me to him when I was having a difficult time sectioning off a worm at the front of Maury's boat to put on the hook, feeling sorry for that. He said, what are you pulling some Albert Schweitzer on me? He said, uh, no, I sectioned the worm and had no problems. But uh, Schweitzer was a lecturer. He was a preacher. He was a teacher. He's a theologian. He was a humanitarian. He was a missionary. He was a medical missionary to Africa. And he was a false apostle. How do I know that? Well, because of his teachings about Christ. He leaves Christ unrisen in the grave, a dead and deluded, even if a good ethical example. A great prophet, perhaps, but not the true Messiah, not God in the human flesh. In other words, to quote Paul, he proclaimed another Christ. What a man! And a false apostle. And that is the fundamental problem of the false teachers in Paul's day or, or in the church today. They may be super sweet people, at least on the outside, but they proclaim another Jesus. They talk of Jesus. They speak of Jesus. They admire Jesus. They even praise Jesus as a man, as a teacher, as a good man, as a, as a true humanitarian. But he's not the Jesus of the scripture that they proclaim. A different Jesus, yes, verse 4, and a different spirit and a different gospel. This is the classic triad, by the way, of false teaching throughout all these centuries of the church's history. Almost all of them revolve around a different Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. They all boil down to that. Sure, false teachers speak about Jesus and the, and the gospel. Boy, they love to use that word in the spirit. Of course they do. They quote the Bible all the time. But look closely at the Christ that they preach. Is he human, but not also fully God? Is he fully God, but only seems to be 
human, some sort of avatar? Does he lay down his life for a political cause or for the salvation of sinners? Is he risen bodily from the grave? And these and other ways we ask, is the Jesus they preach the Jesus of the scripture or isn't he? And who is the spirit? What does he do? And the gospel they preach. Is it health and wealth? That's one gospel. Why? Flip on the TV. It's preached all day long. Or is it the way of the cross? Is it good works to be saved or saved unto good works? Like that conflicted, engaged woman wrote to Dr. Nerdlove, the devil's in the details. That's why John Newton asserted, what think ye of Christ is the test. What think ye of Christ is the test to try both your state and your scheme. That is how you are and what you believe. You cannot be right in the rest unless you think rightly of him. As Jesus appears in your view, as he is beloved or not, so God is disposed to you and mercy or wrath are your lot. Some take him a creature to be a man or an angel at most. Sure, these have not feelings like me, nor know themselves wretched and lost. So guilty, so helpless am I. I dare not confide in his blood, nor on his protection rely, unless I were sure he is God. Some call him a savior and word, but mix their own works with his plan and hope that he his help will afford when they've done all that they can. If sayings prove rather too light, a little they own they may fail. They purpose to make up full weight by casting his name on the scale. Some style him the pearl of great price and say he's the fountain of joys, yet feed upon folly and vice and cleave to the world and its toys. Like Judas the Savior, they kiss and while they salute him, betray. Ah, what will professions like this avail in his terrible day? If asked what of Jesus I think, although my best thoughts are but poor, I say he's my meat and my drink, my life and my strength and my store, my shepherd, my husband, my friend, my savior from sin and from thrall, my hope from beginning to end, my portion, my Lord, and my all, which leads me to my second point of two this morning. First, you have an enemy who would steal you away. Beloved would break off your betrothal if he could to Christ, where a sure remedy against his wiles must be for you to remember. Second, dear church, you have a great bridegroom, a great husband who loves you and to whom you simply must remain devoted in love. It's going to take some effort on your part, apparently. All true love really does, doesn't it? Come now, you know that. As Paul said to the Corinthians at Corinth, we, we put up with false teaching easily enough, don't we? A different Christ, a different gospel, far too easily. In fact, sometimes we're like the Israel of old, aren't we, to whom the prophets had to remind them that they are betrothed to Christ is nothing new, this whole idea of being married to our Savior. And remember, wasn't it in Jeremiah? The Lord said that the people loved it that way. 
They loved their infidelity. If the history of the Christian church teaches us anything, it is that we were, we are ever only a generation. I could, I could spend the rest of the morning with example after example. We are only a generate, we're less than a generation away from turning on our groom to a false Christ. From the truth to a false gospel, it happens that easily, that quickly. But as for us, dear flock, we will have no other. We will have no, like a fiance who is devoted to her beloved, we will not be seduced by the false teachers and talkers, those smooth talkers who come our way. We love our Savior and he loves us and we will not let Anyone lead us astray from him to whom we belong for richer, for poorer, for better, for worse, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish till death do us join. Because you see, for us, even death itself only draws us closer to our bridegroom. How kind our husband has been to us. We weren't a beautiful bride, were we? We were ugly. We were conformed to the world and loving sin. But as Jeff Thomas paints the conversation with biblical brush, Christ said, I will change her. I will give her a new heart. I will give her a new nature. Behold, I will make all things new. I will sanctify and glorify her. I will change her into my own image. When she sees me, She shall be like me. She shall be a partaker of the divine nature. She shall become a fair and lovely bride. And so he has, and so he will. The bride is in great debt, isn't she? Because of her sins. Again, the voice of Christ is heard. I will pay the whole amount, everything she owes. And this is what he does, isn't it, on Golgotha? He takes her every liability and discharges every obligation. Everything is covered. All her bills are paid. Every single one to the penny. But the bride was also defiled, wasn't she, and stained in her sins. I will make her clean, cries her husband. I will open up a fountain for sin and uncleanness on Mount Calvary, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. She shall be as pure as I am. Ah, but she has nothing to wear for her wedding day. I shall provide the dress. He says for her, it will be made out of my own righteousness. The fabric will be my own obedience to God. How I loved him with all my heart. How I loved my neighbor with as myself. That will be the material and I will clothe her with it. There will never be a dress like this dress. It is infinitely, eternally, unchangeably glorious. What of the marriage contract? I'll draw up one, says Christ. Here it is. My body broken, my blood shed. I will make the covenant between me and my bride, my dear bride. I shall be her Lord and she shall be my wife. What dowry does he give? 
What dowry shall the husband provide? He who did not spare his own son, will he not also with him give us graciously all things? He throws a shower. He throws a shower for his bride. You see, no need of this bride, of this bride remains unmet. She even has a place prepared in heaven. In my father's house are many mansions. I love you, he says to you, dear bride. I love you and I take you to be my bride. Who would refuse such an offer? (laughs) Who would turn from such a husband as this? Who would turn from such an engagement and from such undying and unbelievably almost generosity (laughs) that meets us in Christ? Come, dear flock. Come to him. Stay. Stay with him. Now we prepare to meet him or be met by him at this table, don't we? Remember that there is coming soon a great consummation of bride and groom at a marriage feast. What do engaged women think about during their engagement? Come now, ladies. Uh, Stephen <laughs> Stephen goes, whoa, <laughs> wasn't asking you. <laughs> But you ladies have been engaged. You know what? The only thing you think about during engagement, right? The wedding. We are engaged. And the wedding is coming. Listen to this description. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, These are the true words of God. Amen.